Well, hello. Happy 4th of July. Good morning. It's so great to be with all of you. I am one of the pastors here, Emily, and I have a quick little participatory activity I'm going to ask us to do real quick. Some of you are here with a family member or a friend. Some of you are sitting next just to people that are friends you just haven't met yet. What I would like for you to do is turn to some of the people next to you and answer this question. Who are some of your favorite bad guys in a movie? Some of your favorite villains, the think the wicked witches and the mad scientists. Who is one of your favorite fictional villains? I'm going to give you a few minutes to turn to a neighbor and share about that. All right, it sounds like there's lots of good sharing going on out there, lots of good evil villains that you're talking about. I don't know, but maybe you've noticed this. In recent years, it seems like there have just been all these like TV shows and movies about villains and like their backstories. There's like all the Maleficent movies that have come out or this summer Emma Stone is starring in Cruella, which is all about how she became the DeVille or there's the new Loki series. I'm sure you probably named all these other ones that I didn't even think about. Um, and you know, for most of us in real life, we definitely prefer, I think, to see ourselves as the heroes of our stories rather than the villains. But actually, research shows that um, people in fairy tales and fantasies are attracted to villains that remind us of ourselves in some way. The more we see a similarity in a villain, the more likely we are to be interested in that character, to want to understand them, because we identify with something going on in their backstory in some way. Over the past few weeks, we have been walking through a series on the book of Esther, which is a story from the Old Testament about how God works to save his people from destruction. And each week, we're looking at a different character and what they show us and teach us about God's faithfulness. So today, you've probably guessed it, we are going to be looking at the bad guy in the story. It's a villain named Haman. And in so many ways, Haman is just like the worst, most wicked villain you could ever imagine. He is that evil mastermind laughing maniacally sitting back in the chair about to push the button to destroy the world. He is truly bad. And in Esther, he represents all the forces of sin and evil in the world that stand in resistance to God's will and purpose. And for that reason, it'd be really easy to read Esther and to root for his downfall, as if we don't have that much in common with him. But what I'm asking you today is to take a different approach to him. What if we took the same uh, villain curiosity that we have for Cruella or Maleficent or Darth Vader and brought it to Haman? I once read that we, if we can't face the violence that we see in Scripture, we'll never be able to face the violence that we see in ourselves. But if we are willing to look at Haman as a character that is a mirror back to us of our worst tendencies and resistance to God, I think we'll discover one of the richest promises that this story of Esther has to offer us, which is this. God is faithful even when we resist him. Through Haman, we will see 
that God is faithful even when we resist him. So we're going to take a deep dive into the world of Haman, but first there's just a little recap. The story of Esther takes place when a lot of the Jewish people were displaced from their ancestral homeland and were living under the rule of the Persian Empire, which was a huge kingdom that spanned from India all the way to South Sudan. And as the story goes, the Persian king Xerxes unknowingly chooses a Jewish woman named Esther to be his new queen. And Esther initially hides her ethnicity from the king because her cousin Mordecai has told her to keep it under wraps that she is a Jew. But then the real threat comes upon Esther's people when there is a confrontation between Mordecai and the king's right-hand man, which is our villain, Haman. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today in Esther chapter 3. So I'm going to walk us through some of the sections of Esther 3. It's written on the piece of paper with the song lyrics, if you got that. So picking up in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, it goes like this. After these things, King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, which is a lot easier to say, and that's what I'm going to call him. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So let's pause there. So what does it look like for Haman to resist God here? Well, first, Haman's anger reveals an intense need to be in control of everyone and everything around them. You know, every politician has their critics and their naysayers. And even though it's interesting, with enough support, you just ignore them. You keep going. You don't pay them too much attention. But for Haman, Mordecai's small little rebellion infuriates him. Have you ever heard about how psychologists talk about how anger is like a secondary emotion? You can imagine it, it's like the iceberg at the top, uh, and anger is that little tip of the iceberg. It's the flash of temper. It's the elevated pitch. It makes itself known. But underneath the tip of anger, there's the rest of the iceberg, and other feelings are there like grief, fear, rejection, humiliation. And when we don't deal with all that stuff below the waterline, our anger can come out in ways that are harmful, like it does right here for Haman. You know, we don't get a lot of Haman's backstory, but what we do know is that he is an Agagite. He is a descendant of King Agog, whose people were defeated and destroyed by Israel under their first king, Saul. And Mordecai, happens to be a descendant of King Saul. So when we see these two, Haman's anger is just the tip of the iceberg under the surface. There's a lot of bad blood between these two. There's a lot of fear and humiliation. And Haman's way to deal with all that is to pursue control over everyone else around him. 
Friends, whenever we deal with our anger in these ways, it can be such a problem. Unfortunately, my iPad has uh, said that it is too hot to continue. <laughs> and maybe some of you are feeling the same. So I'm going to do my best to go from memory here. So I ask you to bear with me. Um, I'm not quite sure how this is going to go, but we're going to try to keep going a little bit. If someone has a copy of the scripture on a piece of paper, I would love to get a copy of it so that I can keep going. So what we see in Haman in his deep anger against Mordecai is that there's a lot of other stuff going on below the surface for him. There is a lot of fear and a need to control because he has got to deal with it in some kind of way. And so we're going to go on. It actually gets worse from here. Haman doesn't just stay angry. It gets a lot worse. So we are going to pick up in verse... Six. But Haman said this, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus of King Xerxes. For Haman, his extreme need to control and all that hurt and fear that is underneath the iceberg, it leads him to desire to hurt other people. This is insane. Haman's anger way, and the way that he chooses to deal with it, goes way far bigger than the actual crime that Mordecai has done. He's not just going to take out Mordecai. He decides to kill all the people. Jewish people in the entire Persian empire. It's so outrageous and huge. And I think a lot of us, we would look at that and go, man, like, isn't that a little overkill? Isn't he kind of overdoing it? But friends, that tendency to want to hurt others because we ourselves are hurting, it's not just in Haman. It's in us too. It's in... Um, the bully on the playground who needs to feel superior and better than others. It's in uh, the middle school lunchroom at the cool girls table and they treat that table like it's some exclusive country club. It's in the way that you're talking to your spouse and that sarcastic barb comes out because it's your own way of dealing with your own pain. That is what Haman is doing here. And even though it seems so extreme to go from insult to genocide, that tendency to want to hurt because we are hurt is in all of us, and it's a problem. That is part of how Haman is resisting God here. But it actually continues to get worse. Haman has so much need to deal with his fragile ego and to hurt all the Jews in the entire Persian empire that he goes to the king, and he gets the king in on his plot. And that's where we pick up in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Let's pause there. So not only 
Is Haman needing to be in control of everyone? Not only is he taking steps to really hurt other people, but now he is willing to lay everything on the line for this plan that he has going on. He is willing to sacrifice the truth. He actually lies to King Xerxes. He says, it's just a certain people who aren't following your laws. He's willing to lay down a lot of money, 10,000 talents of silver, And he's actually also willing to lay down the peace of the Persian Empire. Because what Haman does later on, he's not like going to tell the military to go kill the Jews. He sends out an order across the entire Persian Empire that every other people group is going to have to take up arms against their Jewish neighbors on one day. And people are really freaked out about it. People are like, we don't want to do this. This is a terrible idea. So Haman is willing to sacrifice the truth. He's willing to sacrifice resources. He's willing to sacrifice peace, all for the sake of his bruised pride. And friends, a lot of us, I think, think of ourselves like we're kind of like a free agent athlete in sports. Like we can just kind of float above it all and be non-committed. And um, like we're not like not on team God but we're also like not on anybody's team. We're just kind of like in this middle ground neutral space and we're not sacrificing anything for any other vision. But what Haman's story shows us is that that is just not true. In the world of scripture, there are only two things that you can be committed and give your life to. Two things you can worship, God or anything else. You can worship God or you can worship anything else. Those anything else's are called idols. And they can be our own pride. They can be another person in our life. They can be our wealth. They can be our job. They can even be our country. They can be anything else but God that we put in a supreme position that we hope will bring us life and security and peace. And we will be willing to lay down everything for that thing that we worship. The trouble is, is that for anything that's not God, it's just a sham it will not actually deliver on the promises that it's making. And it will take everything from us in the process. It will require us to lay everything down for that vision. That's why the Bible says that with, apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin, always hoping for something better, but in the end, always getting the same empty results. That is where Haman is. He has been willing to give up everything for this vision of his own pride. And in the end, it is taking everything from him in the process. And where he ends up does not make you want to think that that was a good choice. And so if we continue on, this is how the section ends. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. And right there, that line, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, sums it up. Because for Haman to be the enemy of the Jews here means that he is also the enemy of God. The struggle and the resistance that happens here with Haman is representative of so much more than just his evil plot. It is representative of all the ways that sin threatens to destroy what God loves. Sin creates resistance in our hearts and our lives from God. And God is at work to say, no, that is not how it's going to end. 
Haman is an enemy of God. And part of what that helps us see is what Paul says in Romans, that we too, apart from Christ, are enemies of God, set against him and his ways, living in resistance towards his will and purposes. There's a lot more in common between us and Haman than I think we might originally want to see or realize. Ultimately, Haman is not successful in his plot to kill all the Jews. Queen Esther and her position foils Haman's plot. And in this ironic twist, King Xerxes will send Haman to his death on the gallows that Haman had originally prepared for Mordecai. It's a story that I think for a lot of us, we could read and sleep just fine at night afterwards. It doesn't make us that uncomfortable. But I hope that if you've been tracking with me so far, you would be able to realize that something doesn't sit quite right with that. Something feels a little bit uncomfortable if you start seeing yourself in the bad guy. And maybe you start wanting a story too that's a little bit better than just ending with the bad guy getting what he deserves. Maybe you want a story too that has a different kind of ending that isn't just about eliminating the threat, but it's about making it right, about fixing it, about solving it. And friends, that is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says this, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is that when we were enemies of God, utterly set against God and his ways, God has taken the first step to act towards us. God has gone into that accursed place where the evil villain deserves to hang, and he has said, I'm going to go right there. Because he does it by sending Jesus to the cross, to the gallows, and he does it for us. Jesus Christ on the cross takes the place of all of God's enemies, including me and you, and he takes what we deserve for us so that we might be made right with God. This is the biggest plot twist you could ever imagine to the story that God is writing, and it is a story that ends with good news for us so that we who were once God's enemies can now live in love towards him and towards our neighbors in a different kind of way. Jesus Christ takes the place of the villain. He takes the place of the villain and he does it for us, who I hope you can see have a lot more similarities to the villain than we might actually have imagined before. So what this means is that when you're feeling parts of your life and your heart that are resisting God, similar to Haman, you have a cross of Jesus to look at that starts to change everything for you. Whenever you start to feel that sense of, of anger coming up underneath, that's the tip of the iceberg and underneath there's all this fear, what you can do is remember the cross of Jesus and look to the one who gives you a secure identity in his love. Or whenever you're feeling that need to control everyone and everything around you, you can look at the cross of Jesus and remember the one who willingly humbled himself and gave everything up for you. 
or whenever you are caught up in your own idols, these con artists that we have in our lives that are making promises that they're never good on, you can look to the cross of Jesus and see the one whose promises are always true and always for your good. Whenever we were enemies of God, God took his enemy's place on the cross. And so what Haman shows us, what Haman's uh, enmity towards God and villainous character shows us is it actually points to something better beyond it. It points to the cross of Jesus and the way that God has acted, not just to eliminate the threat, but to redeem us and make us righteous and make us his enemies into his beloved children. There's a story in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, and uh, it's about this man who was a murderer that has ended up in heaven, and one of his friends that thought he lived a pretty good life but ended up in hell, and they're having a conversation with each other. And the friend that's in hell goes to his other friend that's in heaven and is like, I don't understand why you ended up there and I ended up here. Like, this just is like not make sense to me. How could I possibly be below a murderer like you? And the friend goes, oh, murder wasn't the worst thing that I did. I murdered you in my heart hundreds of times before I actually murdered anybody. And his friend goes, I know, but I just feel like I've, I've lived right. I've, I've worked hard enough. I haven't hurt anybody. I deserve what are my rights. I'm not asking for bleeding charity to get into heaven. I'm just asking for my rights. And his friend goes, then ask for the bleeding charity. This isn't a place where it's about who deserves what. It's not a place where you get to work hard enough to get in. And actually, you're a lot worse off than you ever thought but the bleeding charity is here for you. Ask for it. Friends, that is what Haman as a character points us to, that God in his faithfulness is able to overcome our resistance to him because in bleeding charity, literally, he sent his son to the cross for our sake. Would you pray with me? Holy God, it is so easy for us to look at other people and think, at least I'm not as bad as them. It would be so easy for us to read the story of Haman and go, at least I'm not as bad as him. But Jesus, I feel like you want us to see something different, to see something of the way that we are like him to be brought to the end of ourselves and to see that you, Jesus, on the cross have taken not just the place of the victim, but you've gone there for the villains, for the murderers in heart and murderers in thought, murderers in action, for all of us who at one time have been your enemies. Lord Jesus, would you renew in us the joy of our salvation in you? Would that change everything about the way we live our lives today? In Jesus' name, amen.